UX and Tame podcast episode 19, Gretchen McNeely, working for a large size company. Yo, 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 here we are again, episode 19, the 20th yes. coming, celebration, party, party. I mean, it's going <laughs> to be almost a year when we met. Did we met like around maybe July? I mean, not a year yet, but almost a year and almost episode 20. That's amazing. Wow. Just, yeah, we're going to have some champagne. But first, before we have some champagne, before <laughs> yeah. episode 20. Tequila, I will have out. some tequila. <laughs> of course you will. <laughs> wine for me, I'm a wine girl. Anyways, how about any updates from your work? How is work for the government of Canada? Oh, Canada. <laughs> Uh, well, I, yes, I feel like I've been so busy that finally kind of works is not setting. I'm kidding. I'm feeling more busy, like I'm finally kind of in that rhythm of working. But I now I'm working with my team, my new team. But I think what I have figured out in the last month um, and something that maybe I want to comment to is like, uh, I've been talking with different, I don't, I don't want to call it like mentorship, but I've been doing mentorship calls with different uh, new women entering <laughs> UX. Um, and it's more about, uh, I mean, approaching where to work, what is important, whatever. I mean, we've been dealing with this for each of us, like for a year. And I realized and something that we are going to hear in the next and with Gretchen, uh, really working in those soft skills. That's my day to day. Really that interaction and communication with your team is going to be your everyday thing. Uh, working in Figma, maybe 5% per week, maybe working on Trello, I don't know, another 5% by really interacting with people is going to be the most essential thing that you are going to do. <laughs> and that's for me, one of the biggest learnings uh, in the past three months, I've been working on my job for three months, but definitely in the last month um, is really understand the politics of where you're working and who do you need to talk with and who is going to have that answer that you need. And honestly, <laughs> you need to take the time to meet your team. And now that I know that it's remote, it's a little bit harder, but I think that's my biggest learning. Take the time to meet whoever you're working with you, developers, QA, your PM, your Scrum, um, all your SMEs, like anyone, just do a coffee, like a virtual coffee, take the time to know who they are, what they like, how do they communicate, what are the expectations, because that's what has been changing so much at work. And now that we are starting from zero and no one knows us, uh, we've, been have, we've been networking inside of the organization. <laughs> uh, I don't know if this makes sense to really, uh, open up your ears, taking the time to listen. Whew, it's been intense. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I'm super excited for our guest today. 
I didn't have the chance to sit down with her and talk. I usually do like a virtual chat to meeting people to see where we can put them. But for this series, she is just on point because she is not just talking about, I don't know, large company. This is like a huge, mega, big, <laughs> I don't know how big is this, but big companies. And she makes that comparison from different sizes. So many good, juicy tips for you if you want to get into a large company. So this is Gretchen. Okay, so here we are. We have Gretchen. Gretchen, hi. And just tell us about yourself. Who are you? Sure. Uh, well, I appreciate the chance to, to be on the podcast. I work in user experience, and my role is that of a user experience architect, which is probably most similar to what some people might think of as a UX strategist or a design research strategist. There's a lot of those terms that, that overlap with each other. I've worked in design for about 16 years this week. Um, it's my second career. Started out in um, advertising for a while and uh, then went to grad school and switched over into industrial and digital design. Congrats on 16 years. Thank you. Um, what sparked your interest in getting into UX design? Why did you switch from advertising? It was a, a very circuitous path. So my master's is in, my MS is in information. So my focus is understanding how people look for information, uh, how they know they've found it, um, how they frame their inquiry. So that's what my focus was on my master's. And my activity coming out of that was what we call secondary research. So I was doing a lot of business and venture capital research to determine whether companies should invest in other companies. And a friend of mine I had worked with years ago in interactive uh, said, hey, you know, I think, I think the work you do would make sense for industrial design. And I said, I, I don't get that at all. I don't, I don't connect. I don't connect library research with industrial design. And she said, well, anytime our team designs something, you know, whether it's a product or a service or an environment, we have to talk about where it lives in the marketplace. And you're a really good person to do that kind of research. So I, I went, I had an inter interview, I fell in love with the idea, started working there and then realized what they really need is people who can do primary research, people who can do ethnography, people who can do contextual inquiry, usability. And I ended up getting training in that and really ended up shifting over to that as my focus. So I work primarily as an ethnographer. I'm generally involved at the very, very front end of design projects where we're exploring the space to see if there even is an opportunity. Uh, you know, and if, if we really want to serve a specific audience. Um, so as I say, circuitous path, uh, but I'm, I'm very happy in it. Oh, I love this story <laughs> because it's like, it was magic. It's like meant to be like, it, it pulled you over and you didn't even know that you, you were going to be so good. Uh, I love that kind of stories. <laughs> um, and I think uh, something that we, we really like to know is what is that experience in working in a company that is big, that um, it has so many people around how, I think because I think Ali, something that I haven't talked to you 
I think it's the politics things at work and how is that interaction between all the different departments and different lines of business. Uh, I think this is what I have. <laughs> I work in public sector, so maybe it's a little bit different, but um, I think we would like to know what is to be, what it feels to work in a big company. Sure. Uh, well, let me preface it by saying that, you know, prior to working at this particular company where I am now, which has 500,000 employees, a little more actually, um, I've worked at companies as small as eight people. And then prior to this, my previously biggest company had been about four or 5,000 people, let's say. Um, and I very much value the experience of having worked at companies of, of very different sizes. Um, when you work for a very large company, you tend to have great infrastructure under you. You tend to have lots of uh, not always, but you tend to have lots of programs and tools and capabilities. And if you have a question, someone's asked it before. If you need someone who understands XYZ, someone understands XYZ. So you, you kind of, in a sense of resources, you have the resources there. Um, and that's one thing that's really been valuable about working at a large company. What it's like on the other side, you reference politics. And I have done a lot of work in the public sector and, and certainly that's, that's present and it's probably just as much in the private sector, but um, the the politics I see break largely for me into two categories. One of them is the people that want to be involved in a project, even if their involvement is really kind of peripheral or the team is getting too large there's a magic number for teams. I, I don't really care how big the project is. And, and for me, it's often like four to six, you know, now obviously you swing in one direction or another. I work primarily with software developers who like to pair. So maybe our team gets a little bigger. Um, if there's two people, you know, working for Procter and Gamble, maybe that's not big enough. So there's a sweet spot for teams. And I do find one of the pieces of politics is that people will often try to make those teams bigger. And there's a lot of reasons that they might, might do that. Um, and the other thing I notice in terms of, of politics is uh, the difficulty in waving the flag for design or UX in a large organization, particularly if your organization is not a design-led organization. So my company is, is a technical consultancy. They are not design-led. They have, however, very powerful and intelligent and high-performing design groups within it. And so I can pair with those groups or I can learn from those groups. I'm in a very small group. There's maybe 20 of us. Um, and so constantly having to... Uh, restate the value of design, restate the value of UX research. And I, I know this is familiar because you also have to do that in a company with eight people, right? And the best way to do that is to show, is to show it rather than trying to tell it, you know? Um, but I think those are, those are kind of the two things that come to mind is you have great resources, but you also have, um, you have a lot to wade through. You have a lot of people and a lot of processes to wade through. I'm sure that's familiar. It's interesting how UX research is so um, underrated 
It's like I get, I hear this comment all the time that, mm. you know, we have to defend UX research. We we had to explain it to stakeholders. And it's like almost every single person I talk to who is doing either UX research or UX design or anything UX related, like everyone is saying the same thing. And it's just like, it's mind blowing. It's like, it's the most important part. It's like, how can you design something if you don't have any data to back it up, right? Um, yeah, so just, just throwing it out there. Yeah, it's very true. And a lot of it is, either individual or corporate egos come into play and they say, well, we know we understand our customers. Um, and you certainly can understand your, your customer very well at a, at a quantitative level, at a, at a raw functional or behavioral level. You can understand that 20,000 people bought this object on Tuesday, but to get, you know, to get into the why and to get into the fact that Allie buys it for a different reason than Gretchen does, even though they have the same end behavior, you really need to dig in to understand that. And that can have great ramifications for your brand. And it can have really, really terrible ramifications if you push a project through or, you know, product or service through without doing that work ahead of time. Um Okay, so let's say I'm a new designer and I'm looking for a job and I'm trying to see if the environment that you work in is the right for me. <laughs> so what do you think will be those three cons and three pros of me working in a large size company? Well, I'm going to actually take my company out of it because we are so obscenely large. We're like bigger than the population of like Luxembourg, probably. I say this as a former librarian, I've not looked this up. So somebody bust me on that. But I mean, it's half a million people. I don't know half a million people. You probably don't know half a million people, right? Okay. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna talk about the difference between, let's say a company of several thousand and a company of up to 150. And there's, there's a reason I choose that number. So if you think about the pros and the cons for a new UX designer or UX researcher going to a large company, you are very likely going to get trained. You are very likely going to have, if not, you know, you getting trained, you have the opportunity to push yourself for your own training. Um, there's going to be uh, standardized tools. There's going to be standardized templates and processes and you know, we can, we can, you know, turn up our nose at templating or processes. But the fact is after 16 years, I, I know how I want to do things. I have my own little templates. I just don't write them down. And so um, it's, it's great to have, I think as a, as a junior employee, it's really great to have that um, well-trodden ground that's there before you. The other thing is by virtue of it being a large company, you may have a, what I would call a fairly large UX group. Do you get to pair with someone? Do you get to work with eight or 10 different people? Do you have professional leadership? So if you have a little bit of real estate staked out at your company, you know, two things happen. One of them is you're probably getting some pretty interesting clients. You know, I, I work almost entirely with Fortune 100 companies, and that's because we are such a large, a large company. Um, 
And so you've got the, the training, you've got the client exposure. And then that third piece is what I would think of as, as that professional growth or mentorship at a large company, you're probably going to be able to find people to mentor or train or guide you, some of them formally and some of them informally. Um, and I love that. I, I mean, I started, as I say, I started in advertising um, many, many years ago before either one of you were born. But I still connect with the people, some of the people who guided and mentored me back then. Um, and I love that for junior designers. I started out at a company with 5,000 people and I started to learn how the processes worked. Um, you start to see how clients act. And that's another thing is that I think when you work at big companies, your coworkers will have seen it before. Oh, that's what Blue Cross does. Oh, that's what Pfizer does. That's what P&G does. And you start to say, okay, I don't need to freak out all the time. This is a common behavior. It's a common problem. We can address it together. Um, and I love that for junior designers. I, I mentor other designers at my company and I often say to them, and I'll probably get fired for saying this, but I often say, I want you to work here three years and then I want you to go somewhere else because you're going to come out with really clear structures and processes and a sense of who you are, but you're also going to be chafing a little bit. You're going to be like, I don't want to bust out, you know, then go to a startup, go to a mid-sized company, go to a company that's hovering around that cultural shift that occurs at about 150 people and then, and bring what you have to bear. But I love the idea of having juniors start out at a big place. Now the cons, you may not get to spread your wings as much, which is why you start to chafe and want to go somewhere else. You might, you may find that those templates and processes actually lead you to be kind of limited in what you get exposure to sometimes, even though you're like, I can do it better than he can, or I have an idea. I don't know if I can bring that idea up in this meeting. Maybe there's a lot of formalized behavior or politics you have to deal with. Um, the other thing I will say is, and this was much more important to me as a junior UX person, very, very big consultancies don't have a lot of street cred with design. So, you know, if I, if I mention this large consultancy where I work, other designers aren't going to be like, oh, wow. They're going to be like, oh, I'm sorry. And so that can be, you know, that can be a little tough, um, you know, at the, at the same time. And the, the last thing is when you get a large company, you do get fragmentation. So we have lots of UX groups all around the company. There's not just one. There's one very large one. And then there's, I don't know, I'm going to say eight or 10 small groups of 20 to 50 people that don't work together or know each other. So when you're at that small company, you're wearing all the hats and you're doing all the work and you, you're it, but stops with you. With a large company, sometimes things can get fragmented and you don't necessarily feel like there's a consistent view of UX across the practitioners. So that, those are the three things I would say. I can definitely add on the mentorship as a junior designer, because uh, when you were talking about it, I recalled a few 
um, rejections when I was trying to apply for um, a job as a junior UX designer and those places were not big companies and um, I would be honest and I would always mention that as a junior designer I would like to have a mentor or some support it's not that I cannot function by myself it's just in case if I need someone somebody would be there for me and after I would say that they would be like well actually we need someone who is very independent and Unfortunately, we cannot provide you that. And I'll be like, okay, well, that's not the place for me. But it was also interesting just to hear that and being like, okay, uh, nobody can help me if I have a question, nobody will answer it. So I think it's a good point to, you know, it's nice to have a mentor, you know. I think that's incredible self-awareness on your part to know that a mentor is important as you start in the industry. Um, I absolutely wish I had formalized my mentorship when I was younger. I was lucky. I, I kind of slotted in with people who really guided me, but there was nothing formal and I wouldn't have known to ask for it. So I think that's fantastic. Thank you. Um, yes, I, I, I think I remember um, back in the school with one of my mentors and, and she asked me like, uh, what will be one of the questions that would you ask in a company? I said, well, whatever, whoever is going to be my lead or my boss, I want this person to be able to take me to the next level. This person to say to me, I want you to take over my job. If you as a leader, as my boss, you cannot bring that. I don't think that I, I want to be part of your team because you don't have my best interests. And if you don't have my best interests, how I'm going to contribute back to the company, contribute back who, who you are. And um, and I think that was, uh, and it's still one of the things that is more important, not because I'm going to steal your job, because I know that you're going to grow as a person when you are just teaching me and showing me all of this that you, you have learned over the past years. A few, I say a few months ago, however, it was actually shortly before the pandemic, which makes it almost a year and a half ago. Um, a colleague I met in the, the, the town I live in, someone I, I don't work with, um, Pete Krutoff, he and I wrote an article and presented it called 10 questions every UX employee should ask their first manager. I think I saw that one. Yeah, maybe so. And that actually gets at a lot of what you're saying is like, what are you going to give me as a manager? How does this pull me up? How am I ultimately positioned essentially? Because what you want to do is make your boss unnecessary in a certain way of, of thinking, right? Because you're performing their role and you're making their life easy and allowing them to go do other things and allowing you ultimately to move into that position. Um, so just to, to hawk that article it, for a second, it does get really to what to what you're saying. And, and I think it's, I think it's so important that we have the bravery to ask those questions, um, particularly as, as non-males entering, entering this or any industry have the bravery to, to really push on those questions. There's a lot of jobs out there. If they're going to shy away because of your need for structure or mentorship, you don't want to work there. And for me, I think that's one of the biggest learnings while looking for a job uh, is definitely that part is like, why do I want to work in a place that don't care really about me, don't care about my growing? What is the point for me to spend the time? And 
maybe not my knowledge as a UX, but really the experience that I've been bringing from my life, from everything that I have done. Um, I think if you don't value that, no point to spend my time here with you. Yep. Okay. So now that we know what is good and what is bad, now I want to get where you are. <laughs> like I want to work in a large company. What do I need to do? How do do follow your career path? Ah, um, I will tell you, I took the path of least resistance, which is we got acquired. <laughs> so, and, and actually I say this in all seriousness, if you are ultimately interested in working for a large company, you can, you can apply there. Um, and, and this is probably clear. You apply through the UX or design department there, but if you are working at a company of say, 200 to a thousand people, a mid-sized company, your company is probably being approached about acquisition. It happens all the time. And most of the design firms I've worked for that were not this company were being approached by large consultancies like my company. Um, a lot of large uh, technical and management consultancies are looking for in-house design and in-house UX. You know, so they don't have to farm that out. And I think it also burnishes their brand a little bit. So if you, if you are in, if you are working at a mid-sized company, it may happen to you. Um, if you are looking for a large company, a large, large company, I will tell you a lot of them recruit directly out of college. So uh, any, any of you who are coming in with a, a, a bachelor's or a master's in, in UX and design, I do not have that, but any of you that do, they will often try to uh, grow their employees, you know, from the inside. Um, it's, it's notable, I'd say it's notable when a company of our size hires uh, what we call an experienced, an experienced candidate like someone like my level, uh, it's not that common. They, they like to grow from within. And this was also true at the advertising firm I worked at, that was 5,000 people, is I was one of 13 folks recruited from my class in undergrad. Um, so it was like 1.3, well, I should know, it was 0.13% and math was not my major. Anyway, let's call it between 0.1 and 1% of the class was hired just to work at this one company. So um, if you are in an education program, I would definitely go to the career days. You will see the very large consultancies there. Um, also major conferences. Um, our company is, is excellent in walking the talk in terms of um, the queer community, in terms of women, uh, racial diversity. They're very, very present at those conferences. Try if you're able to attend those larger conferences and and go to their to their career nights. Those are those are the big places where I see us recruiting is on college campus and at um, at at conferences. The last thing I would say is it's kind of folks like me. It's like if if I'm able to introduce you um, to a talent manager at the company, that's that's always a nice flag on your resume rather than just sending it in cold. I know you know what it's like to to send in your resume cold, and I don't think I've ever gotten a job out of that personally. 
it's always been through someone I knew. And I say that, it, I, I say that in a very positive sense. I, I think it really does make sense to know someone at the company you're going to work at. Um, I'd be quite intimidated otherwise. Um, okay. So I made it. Now I'm working in a large company and I'm going to throw this at you, even though I didn't ask the question previously, but what do you think that I need to have now that I'm working on the company? Um, like, I don't know what kind of skills or what do I have to bring to the table to feel, I, I don't say comfortable, but I feel like I'm doing something. Right. Um, well, I can speak to that in terms of UX research. And like I said, I mentor designers and I pair with them. I am not a designer myself. Um, so as a researcher, I, I feel like you need to have uh, a really good grasp on uh, interviewing technique. I probably say that because that's my bias, because that's what I do. Um, but I have seen, I haven't seen projects get torpedoed by bad research, but I've seen them slowed down through bad techniques. So be like, be good at your job is what I would say. And, and a lot of that is really, really being willing to accept feedback. Um, one of the greatest things I got from my company before we were acquired that we continue now to this day is we're very big on peer feedback. And so following an important meeting or presentation, or even if I conduct an interview, I'm going to go to my team and I'm going to say, I want feedback. I want to know what I didn't do well. I want to know what I did well. What should I be doing differently? You know, every week we conduct a, and since we're an agile group, we conduct a retro. What can we do better? You got to be ready to take that feedback. So that's one thing I'd say you need to have is you need to have, it's not just the thick skin because that implies that you're not letting the feedback in. It's like you need to have a porous and absorbent skin so you can take that, that useful feedback. Um, and I'd, I'd say, you know, even at a junior level, have a good sense of what's out there in terms of technique more than tools. And I, I may have people disagree with me on this. I have never found tools to be very interesting or helpful because until recently, they weren't that easy to use. Like until the advent of, like, I love Figma, right? I think Figma is great. Um, I think there's a lot of third-party offerings. I love Dscout, I love working with them. Um, I, I love Fieldcats. There's a lot of great, you know, recruiting and research and design tools now but you can learn a tool in the evening or from your friend or from YouTube. And one of the best pieces of advice one of my grad school professors gave me was he said, do not take a class in grad school on a tool. I was going to take a Dreamweaver class. That's how old I am. And he's like, no, you're paying a lot for this graduate degree. He's like, take a class in theory, take a class in technique, take a class in understanding standing information don't take a class in dream waiver and so that's that's a big piece of advice and i think it's hard because i'm sure as as new folks in the industry they're like okay do you know figma do you know sketch do you know illustrator like they're gonna go down the list and my response is is pretty much do i have a handle on the small set of tools that let me do my job there's going to be 17 other tools out there that kind of do what these tools do. You don't need to know them, or if you do, you can figure it out. If you have a company that says, 
man, all we do is use Trello. Like you got to really, I don't know, Jira, whatever. Great. Be like, I commit to being expert in this tool before day one. I'll do it on my own. But um, again, just like I'd look askance, you know, at a company that didn't want to mentor you, I'd also look askance at a company that was super married to you understanding a specific tool. Not true for software developers, right? You know, maybe if they're not full stack, maybe they want you to understand Java or C++. Um, but even our software developers at our company don't necessarily have a huge breadth and depth of knowledge in a certain language. They'll have depth in one language and the ability to be a polyglot in the others. So that's what I, that's what I think you need. Yeah. An, under, an understanding of theory and technique in your field and the ability to absorb and act on feedback really rapidly. I like the, um, the tools common because I was just thinking, uh, at my current contract, um, there were so many tools that were mentioned in the job posting. And I was like, I have no idea what those are. <laughs> I either haven't heard of them or I have heard of them, but I wasn't exposed to them. And they, they still hired me because they cared more about my other experiences and my personality. And those tools, I've learned them honestly on the spot. They're so like, as you said, in one evening, there's this um, Adobe Experience Manager. I don't know if you mm -hmm. guys uh, heard of it or work. It's so easy. You just go and it's so intuitive. You just, you know, they gave me the task. I clicked and I know how to use it. You know, I'm tech savvy. Uh, or Jira. It yeah. looks like Trello, you know? And it's yeah, like, it's yeah, not I that hard. I, I would be kind of upset if somebody asked me, do you know Jira? And I'll be like, no. And they would say, well, that's it. You know, <laughs> we can hire you. Usually my response is, if somebody asks me if I know a tool, I'll say, if and if I don't, I'll say, I don't know it, but I, I will learn. Tell me where yeah. and I will learn. Or give me the login and the password and I will learn. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not like everyone else using Jira is an unattainable genius except us. So I guess we'll never figure it out. Right. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy to hear that they, they understand that response from you. Ah, uh, oh my goodness. I love this conversation and I think we can go forever with you, <laughs> but um, let's finish up with something fun. I, I want to hear like something good. You want to hear something good. Okay. As opposed to what we've been hearing so far, uh, is that in, in the, in the field or you want to hear something? Uh, anything, anything. No, okay. I, I will declare, I declare here what we've been hearing is amazing. We just want to finish in with something more light and fun about you. Something more okay. personal if you have. Sure. Um, Spice. okay. So I have worked as a professional stand-up comedian and event host auctioneer and uh, a wedding uh, minister for on and off for 10 years and this is very very helpful to me in my work I mean I will I will tie it into that I started out as an improvisational comedian and children's theater performer in Chicago in 1995 and then that uh, you know, made my, made my way into, into stand-up and hosting and, and auctioneering and weddings. And, and really it, it is all just a flavor of improv. 
um, you know, effective work in, in the field that I am in. So my job as an ethnographer is to make absolute strangers very comfortable with me quickly and sometimes have them talk about really tough topics. My very first project in ethnography was about dementia in aging. So, you know, I'm in people's homes and I'm hearing very difficult topics and they're being incredibly open and vulnerable with me, right? So it, it, is, it is like comedy. It is about connection. It is about pacing and it's about pausing and, and find, finding, finding that point of, of humanity that, that brings you together with someone else. This might be a client in a meeting or might be an absolute stranger who's opened their home to you or it might be an audience of a thousand people. But if you can, if you can find that, that point of, of connection, you're, you're going to really have something special. So that's the fun thing about me. She is laughing because I was like, who's going to relate to that? Um, yeah, I don't do stand up, but I've been doing improv comedy for the past two years. And Fantastic. it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy how you were just making a connection between research and comedy. Uh, that was my pitch to a full-time UX researcher contract um, I was interviewing for uh, like a week ago. That's exactly what I did because I never worked as a UX researcher. I did research, but I'm very junior, so I'm like, I have to sell myself. <laughs> yeah. So I literally, I was like, you know, I actually do improv. And I was saying all these like great things, how like I make people comfortable on stage, even if I'm playing a crazy character, because I love playing crazy and wild characters. And I was like, I can make people comfortable in the intro. And I was just making all these things. And it just, it's incredible how, you know, you are not in, even in Canada, but we are so similar in a way too. And, you know, think in a similar way. Um, yeah, I hope, I know they're still interviewing other people. So fingers crossed. No, good luck. I mean, I mentioned that on my LinkedIn page because I, I've softened the connection I used to draw. I used to make it a very overt connection since I'm no, you know, longer looking for work overtly. I, I've softened it, but it is just listening. I mean, my job is listening. And as a, as a comic and as particularly as an improviser, your job is listening and that tells you what to do right? It's all there. And, and it's when we don't come up on stage with a premise and a plan and we have no script. That's when we do well. And that's when, you know, something magic happens. Yeah. And it's interesting how people usually mix up stand up and improv. And yes. Like, that I makes me insane. And I have to explain what it means. And then, you know, even after yes. I explained it, they say, so nothing is planned. I'm like, no, nothing is planned. It's called improv. Yeah. It? It's like having I a conversation it. every day of, I mean, you and I are improvising, right? I knew yeah. there were structured questions, but I hadn't come up with answers and we still did okay. <laughs> right? I love it. What what people I've found got really confused about with stand-up was that they would come and give me material and they'd say, can you put that in your stand-up set? And I'd say, do you, do you understand how this works? I have to write it. You know? Yeah, it's, it, is, it is funny. I definitely got that, that same question about what the difference was 
between stand-up and improv. You're not alone. Yeah. And, and I mean, people would watch the shows because now we are performing online. We just go through Zoom and we go live on YouTube. And then still, like, there was a scene with a giant and a little person. And I came in as a second little person because I was like, that's a perfect. I can just come in, say a few lines. I'm a little person. I'm looking for a tiny scientist party. That was my line. I just made it up on a spot. And then somebody was asking me, how did you know that you have to come in as this little person? I was like, because it was perfect opportunity. Yeah. It's what the scene needed. Yeah. yeah. And then they were like, but you, so you didn't plan it. I'm like, no, I no. didn't. I'm like, no. <laughs> it, yeah. Yep, exactly. Oh, well, um, I'm, I'm glad you see that connection. And, you know, it can help you in your client work as well. It can help you in meetings and in, in UX workshops. In any number of things, so it's. I think I think everyone should do improv. Um, I was lucky enough to have my advertising agency pay for a year of improv instruction, and it quite literally changed my life. Like yeah, no joke. I, I agree. I always tell people it changed my life, hundred percent. Juliet, <laughs> yeah, like you're next. Check me. <laughs> you're next. Yeah, check me. The funny thing that we can finish up. I don't know if it's funny. Always people think that I'm funny in English, but I feel like in Colombia people don't think that I'm funny in Spanish. I don't understand. Uh, but yeah, that's usually my improv. Improv is every day being me speaking in English. People mm -hmm. have always fun. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for this. This was so good. Um, I think I didn't have the chance to tell you about all the series that are coming up, but I think you will be so good for so many. So I will sure. still bother you on Slack, on email. Again, this was so good. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks so much, Greg. Right, Bye. Bye now. Oh my, oh my. The comedy talk just had me. And I would <laughs> talk and talk and talk. And I feel like so many people are going to hear the last bit and be like, the difference between stand-up and improv. <laughs> Tell me more. Well, but you know what? When you were saying that, um, I feel like improv sometimes when it's really good, you think that they've been practicing because it just feels so natural and so in place that it's like no way that you just came out of nowhere with this. So I think that's why people disbelieve, not because I totally get it what is improv, but because sometimes it's just so good that you cannot believe it. I agree. Yeah. But the whole point is it's you are trained to do that. Like that that scene I was talking about entering as a little person. It was just because I knew, and as Gretchen said right away, because she knows, it just because you see there's an opportunity and you, you don't plan it. You watch and you listen, exactly what she was saying to you, just listen. And you're like, oh, I can just come in. Um, yeah, you, you should try it. Like how I actually got into comedy because the school I go into right now, they were offering free classes for women, uh, people identifying as women and transgender people. That's how I got in. Um, and you know, they have so many different scholarships. So yeah, hit me up. I feel like it could be good. I feel like, I don't know, maybe uh, we have never really talked about these and like in, in death, uh, in death, in death, okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but are you not, are you afraid of not being funny? Is that like a real fear that 
happen? Like go through your mind? Oh, I love this question. Thanks for asking this. No, actually, it's not that. I think it's about, because I'm so far now in terms of there are different levels, right? And the far, the farther you go, the more complicated it is. And also like in my school, there's a rule that if you are not getting the concepts of the current curriculum, they make you repeat the class. So it's like very serious. And it's more about the stakes are high. Um, and like my school is big on characters because it makes scene funny. Uh, and it's always, okay, I've played so many characters. What kind of character should I play now? And sometimes what we have, we all kind of fall back into the same characters uh, that are safe uh, because you know them, you've played them so well. And sometimes instead of coming up with some wild idea, you just like play this safe character. But then our instructors, they always notice that. They're like, hey, you know, you have those like couple characters and you always do them, you know, kind of expand. And then they know you can do it. And I'm like, I know I can do it, but it's, it's safe. So you just, you just fall back. And you know, also about being funny. I think the funniest scenes I've seen is, or I've done myself is, it was just something so simple. It wasn't even like the line itself. It's not funny at all. Like last year when things were in person, um, I remember there was a scene and I was playing ex-mailman and I came knocking on the door and my scene partner was sitting waiting for me. So I came knocking on the door, but again, the way I came in and the way I was like holding my arms, it was like weird. I was just like making stuff up. And then when she opened the door, I said, hello, it's been a while like this. And everyone was just howling like, they were just like the whole crowd were just laughing so hard. And I remember in my head, I was like, I didn't say anything funny. Like, what's so funny? Hello, it's been a while. But then the way I said it, the way I stood there, like just the whole, you know, the character. Uh, and of course, there were so many jokes about the package. It's like, I came to deliver your package. And she's like, oh, a package. And then that was just the crowd was also like, wow. Yeah, that, that would be my answer. Would you try improv? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think so. I, I think I will be, I mean, I think for what uh, I've been doing for so long in my life, I feel like it's a lot of improv. <laughs> like dealing with customers is a lot of improv that you have to do. Uh, but yeah, I think I will be afraid of uh not being funny i think that maybe that's what will make my my head like oh i'm no one is laughing or whatever know that i care at the same time because at the end of the day it's like who cares if you laugh or not um uh i don't know maybe maybe i don't know if i can have another <laughs> another thing to add to my <laughs> crazy life uh but yeah that sounds like like good i mean my girlfriend left tons <laughs> with me <laughs> i don't know if that's that's a good one but yes anyway i think this is good um we have one more guest for this series and then surprise surprise well that will be i still have to ask but it should be someone from 
a non-profit. So stay tuned. Yeah. Well, I hope that for people at this point, if, if you have heard every single episode that you have a better idea, where would you like to work and, and, and how to get there? I think that's, that's the main idea of this series, to get inspired, to get to that dream job. Yes, please. And let's finish with something else today. <laughs> Since <Yes. laughs> I started this. Okay, are you ready? Oh, Canada. <laughs> oh my goodness. I didn't was expecting this. Okay. <laughs> Work for the government of Canada. Oh my. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Bye. And we love you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you.